From Virtuous, I'm Noah Barnett, and this is the Responsive Fundraising Podcast, a show where we talk with fundraising leaders and thinkers to uncover how today's top nonprofits craft remarkable donor experiences and build lasting relationships at scale. On this episode, I sit down with Lindsay Voltz. She's the Senior Director of Major Gifts at the Diabetes Research Institute Foundation. And our conversation covers a lot of ground. But the common thread is understanding what's top of mind for today's philanthropist. What are they focused on? How are they thinking about giving? And how, as a fundraiser, do you navigate those challenging conversations with your donors? And how do you make sure that you're listening well, while also still pushing the purpose of your cause forward and earning the giving of today's major donor? What does that look like? We talk about how this is really a craft of art and science, and Lindsay's background in major gifts and development over the last 10, 15 years, but also her deep background in professional dance and choreography and how those two things are actually relatively similar. How you come in with a plan, but you have to pivot and respond through listening to your partner as you cultivate deeper connection between your supporters and your story. Lindsay's brilliant and provides tons of insights. So let's dive in. We're in the midst of Q3 of 2020 during this recording. And I kick off by asking Lindsay where she thought they would be now when they began 2020 versus the reality due to the upending that the March shutdown and the global pandemic, social unrest, economic crisis has had on her organization. Here's her response. I can't help but think about in January, where we, in the nonprofit world in general, thought we would be in October. Um, You know, typically we're ramping up for Giving Tuesday campaigns and for year-end giving, and we certainly are doing that right now, but it looks completely different. Um, You know, in what I do in Major Gifts, we are focusing on how to get visits via Zoom. Uh, Typically, this, this time of year, when you are a regional gift officer who travels quite a bit, you are on the road. And now we, we are on the road. Uh, And so I've been thinking a lot about the word pivot, which I think is, uh, we all kind of laugh at that word because it's, we've used it so much in, in the past eight months or, you know, seven, seven or eight months, but we really have had to pivot our strategy and look at how we can engage our donors, how we can engage prospects, and what we need to do to be creative in a world that you know that donors are going to be bombarded by virtual requests. Um, and so you kind of lose that that personal touch. And so really thinking about how we can get in front of donors virtually, how we can engage our donors, uh, and, and strategies that we can use to be creative and to really be ahead of the curve. Yeah. You mentioned that kind of dissonance between the plan and the reality that we're in now. And you you mentioned something specific I want to get into is how you're arranging calls via Zoom. And and that's like a super specific point. I'm curious, like, what is that process? What's the receptivity of donors? How has that even evolved over the last six months or eight months that you've been now meeting with donors via Zoom? What is the major gift donor development relationship with a donor look like now via Zoom? 
It's interesting, I know, because it does look different. I think there's there's nothing like having a face to face conversation with somebody and really being able to look into their into their eyes and to have a conversation and get to know them on a personal level. But I will say that thanks to technology, uh, we are able to still have semi face to face. Though it's not that you're you know having a conversation over a, a, a you know lunch or a cup of coffee. You are having a conversation. You're able to make eye contact. So in many ways, I'm grateful for the technology, but it is very different. And I will say that what we have experienced at our organization is a little bit of a cyclical, uh, I guess, cyclical engagement. And it has, it has had to do with the seasons. Uh, so in the beginning of, of the pandemic, I think that people were very willing to jump on to Zoom uh, to have human contact, uh, especially as we were quarantining at home. And so we were very successful in getting those Zoom meetings. One of the things that the Diabetes Research Institute Foundation has also done is uh, some virtual parlor events. We call them Meet the Scientist. And that has actually been tremendously helpful. And really, in many ways, it's opened up our opportunity to focus on a more national scope, whereas it would be very, uh, you know, if we wanted to reach out to somebody in California from our home uh, where the Diabetes Research, Research Institute is in Miami, we would have to fly a researcher there. And it's a large investment uh, and, and fly some of our team there. But now we're able to reach people all across the United States. So we've had success with that. I will say that in the latter part of the summer, I would say, the, I would say around July and August, we did see a, a, a little bit of a decrease in people willing to jump onto Zoom or being as responsive. I think that part of that has to do with Zoom fatigue, which I I, I, think I can attest that we all have felt that. Um, but I think also at that point, there were some people who were able to vacation, um, do some sort of staycations. Uh, you know, many of our donors have vacation homes that they were able to travel to. And so I think they were trying to make up for some of the lost uh, vacation time in the summer when we do typically see a lull in, in philanthropy, uh, you know, face-to-face -face in general. Uh, but now we are, now that we've kind of adjusted to our, we, we call it our new new, um, and uh, people have various uh, school looks different for every single person that we talk to. So some have hybrids, some are completely virtual, some do have their, their children in brick and mortar. But now that we've adjusted and we really do see that people have uh, a little bit more of a routine, we are starting to get those Zoom visits uh, back on the calendars, which is very exciting. We always love to be able to do that. Um, I think anybody who's in major gifts can say that the best part about what we do is being able to form those relationships. And so it has been a little bit lost in the last seven months, the way that we are used to that being. But now this is really just day-to-day. Uh, -day. We're, we're kind of getting used to it. Yeah, no, and I, I, I appreciate the use of the phrase new, new, because um, there, is, there is a lot of that uh, and kind of there is a lot of new, but I'm also curious what hasn't changed. Like we, we just spent, you know, 10 minutes talking about how there's Zoom fatigue and there's kind of this new way to engage through really just a different channel instead of face-to-face, -face, it might be through a virtual meeting. 
What haven't you seen change, though, in seven months? Maybe it's in the what your donors care about that you're working with, the conversations you're having, or even just the way that you pursue new donors or cultivate donors. What hasn't changed from your perspective? You know, that's a great question, and I and I actually love the positive spin on it because there is a great deal that has not changed, and if anything, uh, we have seen an increase of, of passion for our specific uh, cause, which is finding a cure for diabetes. Um, our donors are still passionate. We as an organization are quite fortunate because we have not seen much of a decrease in giving, especially from our major donors. We've had great generosity. Uh, we also have been focusing on more acquisitions. So, so it has actually been very exciting, which is funny to say, in light of the state of 2020. And I think uh, not every organization is seeing this, but we have had almost more interest because I think one of, one of the reasons being that diabetes is, uh, an, is uh, unfortunately the diabetes population is one of the populations that is most at risk for COVID, with COVID-19. And so there's almost more of a need to find a cure uh, in times like this. And so we have seen consistent generosity from our donors, consistent engagement, the passion of our volunteers, of our donor base, of our board members has really been incredible. And that is something that has never changed. In fact, I feel as though we have even more support and even more of a commitment from our supporters. Um, I actually just prior to this was on on a webinar listening to a few other organizations in Florida, uh, the CEO is talking about what COVID has taught them. And someone had said something really poignant, which is the network that you build in the good times is the network that shows up in the hard times. And I think as organ, you know, as nonprofit organizations, we are seeing that the work that had been done prior to COVID-19 when nobody knew that this was, this was coming um, is now helping us because we have strong relationships. And for, for that, we are just so appreciative because we do have so many passionate people who are behind our work and who are joining, joining the cause. And I love that you brought that up because I think that's something consistent that I've heard over and over as I've talked to nonprofit leaders is this framing of how the foundations of development and donor relationships, donor stewardship, um, how you acquire donors, how you tell your story, really this connection between your supporters and your story is what has sustained and differentiated the experiences between some nonprofits and others. Where nonprofits have been able to remain resilient and in some cases, as you mentioned, you know, begin to even flourish beyond what maybe that was possible previously, or just those that have been caught completely flat-footed. And that difference is in the foundations, the first principles of what development is all about. And and I'm sure you you know this well because you've actually spent like almost your entire career, from what I understand, in various roles in development um, across different cause types. So can you can you talk about the essence of donor development and kind of what you find important, not just in this year? I know we spent a lot of time talking about 2020, but even mm-hmm. as you think about this idea of like cultivating donors, like what is essential and what do donors actually care about? Because sometimes we talk a lot amongst each other on how we should cultivate donors, but you actually talk to donors. And that's not <laughs> something everybody actually does, which I think is something we need to remember. 
Uh, exactly. I think uh, what for me, what it all boils down to is, is remaining donor centric. And we like to use that term in philanthropy. We, um, you know, as, as fundraisers, as development professionals, we talk about being donor centric. But truly, I think listening to donors and what their wants are, what their needs are, and responding to that, um, not making any decisions for donors, letting them tell us, this is something that I have been talking a lot recently with my team about, which is that I want to hear from the from the donor, the donor's mouth to my own ears, what they are interested in, what motivates them, why they are supporting our organization, why they are philanthropic in general, what other organizations do they support, what motivates them, um, what motivates their family. I think that there is so much strategy that goes into development and I think that it can really be under underestimated for if you've never worked in the nonprofit sector. There is so much strategy that goes into it. And, and really, that strategy needs to be built around the donors. Um, and so I guess my answer to your question is, is remaining donor centric is so key in in development and listening and, and responding. What you said is so important. You talk about how donor development is actually quite challenging or more strategic than we might give it credit for. So what, how would you describe that? Like, let's unpack that a little bit. Tell me more about that from the perspective that I might not be someone that's on the front lines. I might be someone that's in fundraising or cultivating, but I'm not on the front lines in that major development role. Can you unpack the challenges or some of the strategic ways that you and your team really kind of serve and cultivate donors? I think that major gift strategy in, in particular is it, it can prove to be challenging in that there are many. So we are competing in many ways with many other causes, with other organizations, but for the interests of our of our major donors. Typically, if somebody is in a major donor pipeline, they are in many major donor pipelines. And it is our job to really get to know our donors on a personal level, to get to know them uh, as human beings, to get to know their families, their history, uh, and, and as I had said earlier, why they support our organization or other organizations. And you have to really, in, in these conversations, be completely present and be able to pick up on uh small and large verbal cues that that will help lead the conversation to where you know we need it to go in order for us to truly understand the donor. No two donors are alike. Everybody is completely different. And while some may be very motivated by um, recognition, some may be very motivated by participating in events, some may be motivated by their social circles, some are not motivated by any of those things. And so we really do have to uh, get down at a granular level to what donors are interested in. I had talked to you about this, uh, uh, that I am a huge believer in having very clean data and, and the reason that I think that that is important, uh, and, and it really does fall on the shoulders on the front lines with the, with the philanthropy officers, the major gift officers, uh, because we have to be able to capture all of the information that the organization needs to understand 
the donor to understand what they're interested in. Um, so often, I you know, fundraising in, in many ways is very analogous to to sales. Um, and I've heard so often, you know, the story of uh, someone who goes into to buy a car and, and the salesperson does not listen to what they want. And they show them the completely the completely wrong car that somebody wants a, a minivan for their family. And they show them, you know, the, their shiny convertible that would never fit a car seat. Um, and in so many ways, I think that there's a challenge that we face as the frontline fundraisers that we really have to listen and understand what donors want, because if if we really are able to hone in on their interests and to, to honor their wishes, then that could lead to tremendous generosity. On the flip side, if we don't listen to what their wishes are, if we don't listen to what they need or what they're looking for from the organization, we could lose a potentially very generous donor. Um, and in my book, you never want to lose someone because we want to provide them with with what they are looking for. It's our role to connect their passion with their purpose and their philanthropy. And so in that way, I think that there are many challenges because we are facing so many uh, so many factors that we have to build into our strategy for cultivating a major gift. Absolutely. And I can't, I can't help but draw like the parallel um, that you mentioned that there, it, like door development's really not just a relational thing. Like there's like an art to it. Um, and then there's, you know, a science to it, you know, and, and, and tactile, t- tactical, um, like strategy. And it's kind of this hybrid between the art and the science and the give and the take and the movement back and forth that really helps drive that forward. Is that, is that kind of what you would agree with? It's kind of this hybrid role that really makes the role challenging because you have to kind of do both of those in parallel? Absolutely. And I will say that the most successful fundraisers who I've had the pleasure to work with are those people who understand that it is a science and understand that it's more than, you know, just going out and and having a great relationship with somebody. Um, It really is starting to understand where the science falls and how you can, um, you know, optimize where, how a donor is going to be involved with the organization. Yeah. And, and I've had this conversation before and I, I've described as that you, ha- you have to be really good almost at like improv <laughs> when you're in do- <laughs> donor development. It's kind of this like, you know, yes and approach. But I also want to draw the parallel because you have such a background in this is that it does feel like kind of like a dance with the donor. And I know you have a really strong background in dancing as well. And I'm curious what parallels you might draw between the art of dancing and kind of this role of donor development and kind of like cultivating this relationship here. Have you thought about that? You know what? I've actually thought about it a little bit, but I love that I love that you you draw that parallel because not not many people do. Um I definitely think that there is there are many things, many similarities between between dancing and between you know the art of dancing and and with with development. In in dance, well, for for one, especially if you have the opportunity to be a choreographer, which I have, you know, I, I even currently still am able to choreograph, you really have to think about the entire picture. So I think about it this way. 
When I am, uh, so I, so just to, to set the stage, you no, know, I think you know that I still, I still have dance as part of my life. I am a part-time um, classical ballet teacher. And when I'm thinking about the pieces that I'm choreographing for my students, I can't think about one singular dancer if there are, you know, 14 dancers on the stage. So you're thinking about all of the pieces that go into it and how they complement one another, how they complement one another, how they complement the music, the things that you are bringing out in, uh, you know, the, the music. So there's different dynamics and the nuances and how you are creating a larger picture that the audience is looking at, right? In fundraising, you are looking at your donor, but you are also looking at all the things that is going on in your donor's life and you are looking at all of the things that your organization offers, the different ways that they are able to be involved, the ways that they are engaging and supporting the areas that they are able to support and the things that may come up for them that would be objections or things that may um, mean that they want to deepen their support or involvement with the organization. And so in many ways, I've never actually articulated <laughs> this, but I love that because I do think, um, I do think that there are similarities that you have to look at the entire picture. You have to look at the whole stage and what that looks like is different for every single donor. Um, and what that looks like, obviously, in dance is different. Otherwise, we would see the same dances over and over again. Yeah, yeah. And it's so interesting, too, because we started off the call talking about how in 2020, we all as fundraisers, as strategists, you know, as major gift officers probably walked into 2020 with a plan, you know, a, 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 how we thought, you know, the for lack of a better word, the dance would go go down. <laughs> mm-hmm. And ultimately, until we're in those moments, we walk in with a plan, we walk in with a strategy, and until we actually have to respond with the elements, respond in real time, respond to the partner or the others involved in this, we have to continually pivot throughout that. And so it's this hybrid of like having a plan, but also being responsive in that. And that responsiveness actually being part of the plan because you know that that's what's actually going to make the performance a success. And I'm not a professional dancer <laughs> like yourself, but I feel like there is this element of, and I think that's what we try to capture in the responsive fundraising framework is this idea of listening and connecting and suggesting and listening and suggesting and connecting and this kind of continual flow to connect your supporters to the story, mm-hmm. but through that donor centric lens where you're allowing them to lead in some ways, but you're still guiding them to an overall performance that is going to help mm-hmm. deliver on the mission that you have set out. Absolutely. And as you're, as you're talking, it makes me think about, um, you know, sometimes when I go into a ballet class, I, I have my ballet classes planned out. I know what I'm going to teach, but I notice that my students, that there's something that there's a need, right? So um, I could tell you all the ballet technical terms, but I, I won't um, bore you with that. But I notice, you know, very early on in our combinations at the bar that, there's something that we need to focus on. And so essentially I have to completely improv combinations moving forward to adjust to what that need is. So I can address 
um, you know, whether it's that they need to work on, you know, their turnout or if we're working on engaging a certain muscle group. And so it makes me think about how many times I have gone into conversations with donors with a proposal in hand, um, ready, you know, tucked away in my bag. And I think that we're going to have a conversation about one thing and then it, and then early on, for whatever reason, the conversation turns to a completely different direction. Maybe we realize that there is a better program for them to support, or perhaps there's something personal going on in their lives that is going to um, mean that they are not going to be able to support the organization at this time. Or perhaps I figure out in the conversation that our ask is too low or our ask is too high. And so you have to completely change your game plan and as you pointed out so perfectly, 2020 has been a greater picture of that. Um, So we have to be quick to think on our feet in development. We have to be willing to have the conversations and to, uh, you know, I keep going back to this theme, but listen to our donors and really understand exactly what they need and where they're coming from. Yeah. And I think that is so, so important because again, like 2020 is not only up, rooted, you know, our work or the plans that we had from a business perspective, but we're all going through this unique experience that's shared, yet our interaction with that experience is so deeply personal and unique and how, you know, you and I are talking right now, but our, our, our context is completely different and our experience within that context is completely different because Mm -hmm. of what's going on in 2020 and kind of the the push that it's put on all of us in different and unique ways, whether it's family or um, our, you know, health or just even just the global uncertainty uh, that still exists. So it's definitely important mm-hmm. to do that. And I want to dig into this and I want to ask a few like specific questions. Cause you, you mentioned two things when you uh, were sharing about development that I, I want to kind of push in on and like uh, give you to, or get you to talk a little bit more about one was just like the types of, uh, or that there's competition and that you even want to inquire as a development officer that they're giving to someone or that they, they're likely giving to other people or that they're a gift, a major gift opportunity in other people's pipelines just as much mm-hmm. as they are in yours. Because I do think that's something important to keep in mind is that sometimes I do think we think like we're the one and that we're <laughs> the only important ones. And that's such like an organizational or mission first mindset, which I think is important. Like we should believe in our cause. Mm-hmm. But 2020 has also revealed that there's like a lot of issues and causes. And it's kind of like re I think even pushed people to rethink their priorities as far as like yes. what they care about. Mm-hmm. So how does that show up in the conversation? How do you navigate those as a development officer? I know it's really specific, but I'm curious, like, how you approach a donor to even start unpacking what their portfolio of philanthropy really looks like and where you sit in that portfolio. Yeah. I think having a conversation about, so, so first, first of all, one of the things that I have always tried to incorporate into my early discovery work is just, and this is actually out of genuine curiosity is just understanding what other types of organizations donors like to support? Really, because I think that tells you a lot about them as 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 donors, but also as people. Um, it's it's a conversation that I sometimes have personally with people, you know, friends and family, because I just think that it's important. I, I mean, at philanthropy for me is just second nature, right? I've had a career in it for over a decade, and so it's something that's always top of mind. Um, so. 
going back to your original question and and navigating that conversation and really learning what the quote unquote competition is. The first thing that I go into that thinking is that I would be completely naive to think that we are the only organization that this individual supports, especially, especially if um, they're a major donor in some way, shape or form. I'm sure that they support other organizations. It has just so happened that I also for the last three organizations I worked with work, it worked in, um, disease states that there were multiple organizations addressing the needs of that population. So when I worked at Moffitt Cancer Center, there were people who supported Moffitt, but they also supported the specific, there are many, many organizations that are raising funds for cancer patients or for for research and and their specific area, um, uh, you know, the, the specific cancer that they are affected by. Uh, when I worked for the Parkinson's Foundation, we had, uh, you know, there were there are many Parkinson's organizations out there, and and they're many addressing different needs. Um, and now at the Diabetes Research Institute Foundation, it is the same. We have there are other diabetes organizations, and so what I know is that we we are going to we we need to make sure that we are on the top of our donors list. This is something that our CEO has talked to our organization about and a, and a philosophy that I very much appreciate. We we might not, might not be number one. We want to, of course, be number one on their list, but we at least want to land in their top three or their top five of organizations that they support. Another message that he, he has said to us is that we don't own our donors and we don't. Um, I think that, it is our job to make sure that we are on their list of organizations that that where they direct their philanthropy. Um, and so I have conversations with donors quite often just to find out about who they support. And then once I've already known that information, I'm able to talk about it in a, in a way that is professional. The one thing I will say is that I have never and will never be a fundraiser that would try to take support away from other organizations. Um, because I think it's important, especially in these spaces that I, that I spoke about that I've been working in, that we all, we all need the support. We're all working towards one common goal. And so whoever's going to end up finding the cure for diabetes, fantastic. That is what our organization exists to do. If we are able to contribute, if our researchers are able to contribute and collaborate with researchers from other organizations, and in the end, we find a cure for diabetes, then that is a win for everyone. So having that type of a conversation with donors, I think, helps them to see that we are genuinely in this with them for for the, you know, for the mission. Um, I think, too, just understanding where donors are also directing their giving. There's many donors who give to their religious organizations, they give to their churches, they give to their synagogues, um, et cetera. And so that is something that we also are not going to change. And sure, we're, we may be competing with that, but we just want to make sure that we are we are going to be receiving their support in addition. Yeah, and it's that balance of knowing that they give to others and respecting that they have a philanthropic portfolio and that, you know, that makes sense, but also still advocating for your cause. And that, that is a hard balance because I agree that you're not like, you're not trying to pull funds away from other causes that are also worthwhile, 
but you still are trying to uh, further align the philanthropic intents of a donor that believe in your cause with giving through your cause or giving through your organization to deliver on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's a hard balance. It's a delicate, uh, like delicate thing to be able to, to make sure you navigate. So I appreciate you giving some insights. I, I know we've talked about kind of challenging conversations that you have to have with donors. And, and I know you've, you've likely had many conversations in 2020 with donors. I would love to kind of go be, under the hood as we close, because again, you have this unique position where you're talking to donors, you're talking to major donors every single you know day or mostly mostly every week. What What's on donors' minds? I think that's something that a lot of our listeners likely ask themselves, like, you know, because they, they, they know 2020 is interesting. They know it's changed. They know it's repositioned in a lot of different ways. It's hard to know what donors actually are thinking about as they look forward. So what are there two or three th- trends or threads that you've seen through conversations that are on donors' mind as they look forward and begin to apply philanthropic giving to the future? Oh, my goodness. Um, this is a tough question because there is so much on our donors' minds, just as there's so much on your mind and on my mind, especially in, in 2020. There is a lot going on this year. Um I had a conversation recently with one of my team members because one of the donors was being unresponsive. And I said, we can't take anything personally because just, just as we all are trying to, you know, acclimate to this year and we don't know what to expect next, our donors are human beings and they're going through the same exact thing. Um, and for many of our donors, it is, you know, they have multi-million, you know, sometimes billion dollar companies that they're overseeing. And so there is a lot of weight on their shoulders professionally and personally. But in terms of philanthropy, I think specific to our organization, one of the things that we knew was on our donors' minds, but because um, the, the, type, the type one community, there are many children. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, we have, we have many families in, in, our, in our community. And they were trying to navigate what going back to school was going to look like. And so as an organization, we addressed that. Um, we had, we hosted a town hall and we had, you know, we, we really addressed, um, of course, the health concerns and the psychosocial and um, just the, you know, trying to figure out what's best for, for the, the child. So in that way, that's not necessarily thinking about their philanthropy, right? So, so this kind of goes back to what we had talked about before. Right now, we, as an organization, we want to make sure that we are still top of mind in terms of giving, but there are so many things that, that we are competing for attention. And I, don't, I hate to say that, I hate to use that, that term because how can you com- it's, compete for attention when somebody is trying to figure out the best thing for their child who has type one, right? But um, I think that for us, that was number one top of mind. So I think for, for most donors, there's something that we could say personal going on in their lives that they're trying to make sure that they're navigating around. And I guess the lesson learned is to not take anything personally and don't, you know, if a donor is unresponsive, don't give up. We have to keep being 
you know, we have to persevere. We have to be persistent and make sure that they know that we are here as a resource to them and, and let them know how grateful we are for their support. And when the time is right, that we are excited to continue the conversation. Um, one of the other things is uh, th that's kind of top of mind is that there are different, obviously in, with philanthropy, there are varying levels of people who, um, whose portfolios have been impacted, who um, are going to be, their giving may look a little bit different this year. Um, and for some, their giving is not going to change at all. And so that's why I say having the conversations with people uh, in, in a professional way is really important. Um, I would say that the third thing, and, and you kind of hit on this earlier, is the number of important causes that have emerged at the forefront of 2020. And so being able to have conversations, open conversations with donors about um, what our organization uh, is continuing to do and to kind of find out how, how certain things have impacted them, it has been very important. And that definitely has been um, kind of dominated some conversations recently uh, that, that I and, and my teammate, my teammates have had with donors, but I think that that is to be expected. Um, and it kind of goes to our earlier topic of just general, you know, com competing uh, philanthropic interests. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it, like you mentioned that, and we keep going back to it, it's just being available to listen. And to be available to listen, you have to continue to show up. So it does provide that. It captures what you talk about around persistence and resilience and just like ensuring people know that we're still there and we still care. I know early on in the pandemic, I was listening to an advisor and they were reflecting back on the prior uh, uh, economic challenges that uh, surfaced in 2008, 2009 and how organizations that saw increased success when it hit 2010, 2011 were ones that didn't segment their supporters based on whether they could give or not in uh -huh. 2008 or 2009, but rather looked at the bigger picture and said, who do we know we want to cultivate longer relationships with? Even if that means they're giving isn't what it was before, or they wouldn't necessarily, you know, quote unquote, qualify for a major gift officer, it's it's the the bigger picture there, and I think organizations, you know, like yours and others that are thinking big picture and showing up to listen and serve donors well, regardless of the result of that conversation, are the ones that are going to be able to carry their causes forward and you know their communities forward. And as you mentioned at the top of the hour, like the relationships you developed before the crisis are the ones that are going to carry you through. And I likely think the same is true with the relationships that you develop and the care that you show today within the crisis is what's going to carry you through to the future. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with that more. I think that the way that, that organizations are responding and, and showing, and I, you know, I think I said something about this earlier, genuine interest and, and genuinely caring about the people who are supporting us, the people who are engaged, our volunteers, the people who are involved with our organization and need uh, the information or the services that the organization provides, the way that, that we as, as an organization, and this goes beyond the, just the frontline funders, this is everybody in the organization, the way that we respond and that we treat people, I, I already know that it has really resonated and it has been, um, you know, that 
they see that and they see the way that organizations are also treating their employees and things like that. So it's uh, definitely, I think, paving the pathway and something I've always, always felt before um, any sort of a pandemic for, you know, my entire career is that it is so important that we honor people at every level of giving that even if they're a major donor and they they decrease their giving and they're giving at more of an annual giving level or if they're they've given annual gifts and they're not at that mid-level or major donor level that we need to honor them and and show our appreciation um, because you you never know who your next major donor is going to be. Um, and those supporters, even if they never become major donors, they're integral in helping the organizations, you know, thrive and be successful. Yeah. Well, Lindsay, I appreciated your time. And I want to end on maybe more of a practical charge to the, you know, major development or major donor development profession. Obviously, there's been a lot of challenges and changes that you as a major gift officer, as part of a team of development officers have had to make. I'm curious where you see that going. What do you hope for, for the donor development profession? Maybe one or two things, you know, as we move into 2021, where do you think we could do better as donor development professionals and what you will be, you know, charging forward into 2021, hoping to do for yourself and with your team as well? It's a great question. I think from my perspective, I would love to see the the donor development, you know, profession, I guess, really lean into the strategic side um, that we've talked about today. I there there is so much that we can be doing to effectively plan out engagement and um, to really focus on on the donor. I think doubling down on being donor centric on really listening to what donor needs are and then building out really robust and strategic engagement plans. Um, I think that collaborating with one another and collaborating from team to team and organizations is so vital. And that's something that I look forward to myself being able to do a little bit more of and and our major guest team at DRIF and and beyond and seeing other organizations really focusing on collaboration among teams and really putting the donor first and the donor at the center of everything that we do. I know that that requires some planning um, ahead of time and really focusing on strategy. But I do think that in the end, it pays off because we are able to have happier donors. We are very engaged. Um, and so that that really is, I guess, my my wish for the, the end of 2020 and going into 2021 is to focus on strategic engagement of donors and remaining donor-centric through collaboration among teams and listening.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Responsive Fundraising Podcast by Virtuous. Each episode we've designed to really give you the insights into the philosophy, process, and playbook of leading nonprofits so that you can grow giving and build deeper relationships with the people who matter most, your donors. And if you want to dig further into responsive fundraising, we've actually put together an exclusive content pack just for listeners of this podcast. If you go to virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, that's virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, you can download a content kit that includes the responsive fundraising blueprint, which outlines all of the strategies that are involved in implementing responsive fundraising. You also get the responsive fundraising playbook, which includes 20 plus plays, which are basically strategies that you can implement today at your nonprofit to become more responsive and ultimately raise retention and increase giving. We'll also throw in a bunch of other resources and content that is going to be helpful for you as you think about how you're applying responsive fundraising at your nonprofit. And it's completely free. You can grab that at virtuouscrm.com slash podcast. Oh, 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 o